0: are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to reflect upon your revelation to us, that in your word you have revealed yourself to us, and that all that you have revealed to us and intended for us to know and to have before us is included within these 66 books of Scripture that all are breathed out by you and inspired and are therefore infallible. And Father, these we know are the source of our spiritual life, our sanctification, as our Lord pra- prayed to you the night before he went to the cross, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. Father, we pray now as we focus upon your word that you would challenge us with what we study this this morning, and that as we study these things, we can reflect upon our own focus upon your word, and that we can be reminded of the priority that it is in our life, and that we would be willing to push ourselves to the another level of focus upon your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying in Sunday morning on the Paul's epistle to the Colossians. So if you will turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. This morning we begin on verse 16. Verse 16 is a significant verse for a number of reasons. The first reason it is significant is because of the basic command that is there that we are to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us frequently that is as far as we go focusing on that initial command but the second half of the verse also gives us one of the results it is the first in a series of results that come in the subsequent verses saying that we are to uh that it should richly dwell within us in all wisdom or with all wisdom uh, with the result that we teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. So the second half is foundational to understanding a theology of music in the church, and we will begin a focus on that next week. I'm just going to focus on the first part of the verse today, but there is in uh, evangelicalism today something that is sometimes referred to as worship wars. And the focal point of these worship wars today is on music. And I find that there's a lot of heat and little light in the discussions on music and that there, is, there are a lot of things that are going on today related to that And uh, if you come and visit, or you are here at West Houston Bible Church, you note that we sing what's usually referred to as traditional hymns. Our focus isn't on tradition, though. Our focus is on the content of the words and the quality of of music. And today we need to understand why that is important. And so that will be the focal point for the next couple of weeks but today, to lay the foundation for that, we need to understand the first part of this verse, which focuses on the dwelling of the word of Christ in us. First of all, we have to understand this basic command. It's pretty simple, but it is it uses a word in the English that is often a word that we use to describe various other aspects of our of our Christian life. We talk about the fact that we are all indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. It's a form of this word, not this exact word, but the English word dwelling is something that by frequent use often loses uh, its impact. It is a combination word here, compound word in the Greek, and oikeo. Oikeo is your uh, root verb, which means to make a dwelling somewhere or to live somewhere, it is prefixed by a Greek preposition in, which intensifies the meaning of the verb, and it emphasizes emphasize, uh, establishing your dwelling, your habitation someplace. It indicates taking up residence somewhere, and it indicates that something makes a home there, so the command uh, "Let the word of Christ dwell" somewhat seems somewhat passive in, and we get away with thinking, "Well, if I go to church once a week, or if I uh, affirm the Scriptures, then that's that's okay." This is a much more powerful command than that. This really has, uh, the the word here of of uh, in oikeo has the idea of someone coming and moving into your house and becoming part of your family and where where they have made your house their home. And I don't know about many of you. We have a lot of different guests in our home. Uh, Often uh, some of the pastors that travel through here come and stay. Often we have relatives come and stay. And the more you get to know someone or the more we get to know someone, we make yourself at home our our house is your house, and just uh raid the refrigerator whenever you want to, just you know take it over, make it your your home. That's part of being gracious. That's the idea here in this verb is that the word of God should be m- as much at home, if not more at home, in every aspect of our thinking and our life than anything else. Now, I want you to put that in in context. Most of you have some form of career that demands a lot of your time and a lot of your attention. You are very much at home, I would hope, with whatever it is that your profession is, Uh, whatever it is, whether it has to do with business, whether it has to do with the application of some sort of skill, uh, whether it has to do with uh, serving people in some capacity. You have done this now probably for many years, and you really understand what it is that you do, and you're very comfortable with that. Uh, some of you are younger, and you haven't done that for very long, so you're still trying to make your profession, your career, at home in your life where it is second nature to you. And that's the idea with the Word of God, except it should be more at home in your life than anything else that you do. It should be more at home in your life than your profession, your hobbies, your career. Uh, I have the privilege as a pastor where my uh, vocation is my avocation. That is, my my vocation, my calling my, as a pastor is also my hobby, I have a passion for studying the Word and studying theology and studying the history of Christianity. That is uh, as much a part of my life as, as just as, uh, as my job. So, being a pastor is not just a career option or a career choice. It is it is my passion. It's what I spend all of my time doing because that's pretty much what I want to spend my time doing. So, I get to combine both in one. But I realize that for many people that presents something of attention, of attention in, in your life because you have to devote a certain number of hours every week to your vocation, whatever that may be. You have to get up at a certain time in the morning. That's dictated by your career, who you work for. You have to spend a certain number of hours in every day at your job, where you are earning a living, and that time is not your time; that time is the time of your uh, of your employer, and you need to serve your employer as Paul states a uh, little later on in our study of Colossians. You need to serve your employer as if you're serving the Lord. So that is part of your application of doctrine and part of your letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's part of that application. But what I want to challenge you with today is that I think that most Christians today, even those of us who may pat ourselves on the back because we know a lot, we've been to church for many years, we go to Bible class frequently, we have uh, personally studied many issues, that compared to many believers in the past, we are Amateur wannabes. We're not even amateurs at it yet. Uh, I, have I've been emphasizing this point in my ministry since my very first years. In fact, in my first church, uh, <clears throat> people didn't know the word very well. Uh, most evangelicals don't. They think they do, but they don't. Um, and I was, uh, I read a passage from a, from a, uh, preacher from the 1700s, one of the election sermons from the period just prior to the American War for Independence, and it was a profound section that referred to and assumed a knowledge of ancient history and modern history and law, and I just read a couple of paragraphs, and I had several people comment that, well, people then didn't understand it any better than we do. See, we have these ways of rationalizing our biblical illiteracy, but people then understood exactly what was being said. In fact, because they didn't have television, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have their uh, smartphones and email and everything else to distract them, they spent time studying the word and studying these sermons and many times a pastor's message because in those days many of them manuscripted out their messages they would take those and they would print them and they would be published and then they would sit down at the local uh, coffee house now we have Starbucks and rather than uh, uh, spending their time with their nose buried in their computer or in their in on their uh, Blackberry or i uh, iPhone or whatever they would argue, and debate the points of theology in the sermon. And as a result, it sharpened their thinking, and they came to understand the word better. They were biblically literate, and they were well-informed. And if you grew up in the education environment of that day, then you probably read through most of the Bible several times before at the age of 14 or so you uh, graduated from high school and went to college, and you were taught a curriculum, especially if you were in the colony of Massachusetts, you were taught in a curriculum that included Greek and Latin so that you could sit and be a productive member of your congregation because you could read along in the Greek text of the New Testament as the pastor taught to make sure he wasn't deviating from the path of truth. And it was not unusual in the even in the 19th century for a congregation the size of ours to have as many as 10 or 15 men that were as at home in the Greek text of the New Testament as the pastor. So that ought to challenge and convict a few people here as to uh, their understanding of the word. They knew it backwards and forwards. That enables a pastor to teach more because many times there are Uh, references, allusions in sermons that, uh, I, I feel at times that I would like to make and just pass on, but I'm not sure anybody knows what it is that I'm alluding to. So we have to take the time and go back and read those things. So when we talk about this idea of letting the Word of Christ dwell richly, uh, in our, in our lives, then, we need to understand a little more about what that means. The focal point here is on that phrase, the word of Christ. This is a term that refers to special revelation. Special revelation is a theological term. It's not a biblical term. It's a term that relates to God's direct disclosure of his message uh, to us and for us it's communicated in various means for example in the old testament as well as in the new dreams visions theophanies that's an appearance of god uh, christophanies that's an appearance of christ uh, audible communication where god just simply spoke to uh, his servants the prophets and it is also recorded for us written down for us in the 66 books of the bible the 39 books of the old testament the 27 books of the New Testament, so this is special revelation. Uh, there were things that were revealed via special revelation that we have no access to. God bound certain things up. There were certain things that God revealed to David, revealed even earlier to Abraham, to Noah, uh, that we we have no knowledge of. But they had a knowledge of those things, and that it all comes under the category of the Word. Now, this phrase, the word of Christ, is only used this one time in the Scripture. Usually we have the phrase, the word of God, or the word of the Lord, the word of our Lord. Uh, The focal point is the same. Paul uses the word of Christ here in Colossians, because the focal point of his message in this epistle is to remind the Colossians of the superiority and the preeminence of Jesus Christ as the fount of all knowledge, the one, he is one with the creator, and he is the source and sustenance uh, of all strength, and he is the one who sustains believers in all manner of situations. So, he reminds us that it is the word of Christ. Now, in the, in the original, the phrase word, whether it's devar in the Hebrew or logos in the Greek, often refers to a, it has a range of meaning. It often refers to just a specific, uh, a specific statement or a command of God. Uh, for example, we have uh, verses such as Isaiah 39.5, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah the king, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. That's how he introduced uh, what he had to say. It was a specific message from God to Hezekiah for that particular point in time when the uh, Assyrians were threatening the kingdom of, of Judea. It was a specific Message, so it has a narrow meaning in that sense, not word of the Lord in terms of a single word, but it is a specific uh, specific message. It also has to do with certain uh, commands of God, as we see in the second reference up on the screen psalm thirty three six by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And so there we have a reference to what took place in Genesis chapter 1. And as you go through each of the days of creation in Genesis 1, and those are literal, consecutive, 24 hour days, we read, And the Lord said, Let there be light. And so it is this utterance of a command by God, and instantly there was light. And so it is by the word of the Lord, by the command of the Lord, that the heavens were made. So here, the word uh, "word" also refers to a specific type of event, but it also shades into the sense of the commandment of the Lord. Uh, the word of the Lord also is can refer to uh, the Scripture. For example, in Isaiah twenty eight thirteen, again the word of the Lord here refers to uh the message of God to the uh those in Judea at the time of Isaiah's writing says the word of the Lord was to them, and then it talks about how the word was taught, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken stared. Taught is taught line upon line, word upon word, precept upon precept. But it also refers to the broader sense of all of God's special revelation to man, as in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 40 verse 8. The second reference on the screen: the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God. See, not just in, uh, he's not referring to just an individual command or an individual message, but the entirety of God's messages or revelation to man. The word of our God stands forever in the new testament we have the word used in this broad sense when it is uh, speaking of the entirety of scripture for example hebrews 412 for the word of god is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart that refers to all of God's word, which is comprised of all of the messages of God. 1 John 2.14 uses it in the same way. The middle of the verse, John says, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And we've seen here that that word abide, uh, the Greek word minnow, has to do with fellowship, and because of fellowship, the word of God is dominating, controlling the thinking of these young men when they, are, uh, when they are in fellowship. Now, just as a side note, the word abide is somewhat of a synonym to the word we're talking about in Colossians chapter 3, in oikeo, meaning to take up residence. Abide has a different sense and a different nuance and it, we're using the word inokeo you know, has that idea of making something completely at home, whereas abiding has to do with something that is staying, remaining, and, and controlling. Those are little differences in the meanings of these synonyms. When we look at the use of this phrase, the word of the Lord, we see that it is used in a way that is similar to the law of God. Now, the term law is a term that we sometimes restrict in our thinking to just the Mosaic law. Uh, The Mosaic law is really just included between Exodus chapter 20 and through the end of Exodus, Leviticus, uh, maybe some portions of Numbers, uh, restated summarized in Deuteronomy but actually the word law in Hebrew is the word torah and torah has the idea not just of law in terms of statutes and ordinances but it has the idea of instruction uh, instruction in the way of God and so the first 5 books of Moses even though many of those portions of those books in fact all of Genesis uh, most of numbers, uh, these have to do with uh, historical events, but the first five books of Moses are often referred to as the Torah, the instruction, uh, the law of God, and sometimes even all of the Old Testament is uh uh, summarized by this word uh, Torah. So the law of the Lord is not just talking about the Mosaic law itself, it's talking about the entirety of God's revelation. And I've put some verses up here relating how uh, this comes together. And all through Psalm 119, as I read earlier, we see the references to statutes, ordinances, commandments. Um, Psalm 119, nine, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word, and then connect that to the next verse with my whole heart. I've sought you, oh, let me not wander from your commandments, that connection between word and commandments. Uh, Proverbs 35 says, Every word of God is pure. All of God's revelation is equally the word of God. Not all of it equally applies to us in every situation. Some was written to individuals in specific historical circumstances. Some is written to uh, Israel in the Old Testament. Some is written to church-age believers. But all of God's word is pure and righteous. We also have an emphasis on the value of God's word, in the meditation in the second part of Psalm 19. That's another psalm, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. Easy to remember those two. These are two psalms that focus on the Word of God. Uh, Psalm 19 is divided into two sections. The first section, the first six verses focus on general revelation, beginning with the Well-known statement, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth His handiwork. That's general revelation. Starting in verse 7, the focus is on special revelation, what God has revealed. And note again, we have various synonyms for God's Word, just as we do in Psalm 119. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Notice the things that are said about the word of God. It's perfect. It's sure. Uh, It's also described as statutes in verse 8. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is uh, pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, having read that, we see that the, the Bible is perfect. It's sure and certain. It is right. It is pure. Uh, it converts the soul. It makes the simple wise. It rejoices, brings joy to our heart. It brings understanding and enlightenment to our thinking It is true and righteous altogether. Now, why wouldn't you want that? Why in the world wouldn't you want something like that to just completely control and dominate your thinking? Well, that's the value. And when when the psalmist comes to the conclusion, he says in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So he compares it to wealth and he compares it to your physical appetites of hunger some people have a sweet tooth i know i have a sweet tooth you all know that Uh, nothing is to be is better than ice cream other than the word of god (laughs) nothing is better than gold wealth than the word of god That pretty much says it all about everything. Nothing is better. So why do we spend our times pouring time and energy into things that have just temporal value? Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have hobbies or interests or things of that nature, but when we have hobbies and interests and we spend our time, and we all need to spend a little bit of time just uh, chilling out, watching mindless things on television or some movie we've seen 39 times and we can recite all of the lines, uh, I have a couple of friends that um, some of you know, and <clears throat> we'll go hunting together and frequently recite most of the lines from Big Jake. says something about how we spent some of our youth. So we spend our time doing that, but I wonder, can we say that much from Scripture? Have we memorized that much Scripture that it's part of our life? We spend a lot of time with these various hobbies. I know we have some good cooks. That's part of their hobby in some cases, our vocation in the church, other things. You work in um, different responsibilities. Uh, one One friend that I have is a... Uh, for many years was in uh, human services, vice president of human services for a Fortune 500 co- company. I mean, he could almost recite chapter and verse everything in every manual that comes down from the federal government. But can he recite the same from Scripture? Ah, now we're getting convicting. Because that's what the Scripture said. That's what this verse is saying is that however much you know about your career, however much you've memorized in relation to whatever your favorite hobby is, You should have memorized and learned more about God's Word. It should be more at home in your life than that. That's what the psalmist is saying, that the Word of God is to be more desired than all of these things. And then in conclusion, verse 11, Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. It may not be financial reward. It may not be physical reward, but it is the reward of a life that is well-lived, because it is lived on the basis of truth and for the glory of God. Now another passage that is, helps us to understand this concept of letting the word of, of Christ richly dwell within us is in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6. Now, this is a well-known passage. It's a central passage in, in Judaism, and almost any uh, Jew that you talk to should be able to recite at least verse 4 from heart. This is the central verse in Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's how it's translated in the New King James Version. Interestingly, the Tanakh version, I think it's the 1987 uh, Tanakh, translates the last phrase, not the Lord is one, which is often used by Jews as a defense for their solitary monotheism and not a belief that there is a plurality in the Godhead. But the Tanakh recognizes that the Hebrew word of that is translated one there really is talking about a unity, or it is talking about the Lord in exclusivity, which is related then to the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And I believe that is correct. So they have translated it that the God of Israel is the only God. There are not multiple gods. There are not additional gods. They do not just take the God uh, that has revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai and put him up on the shelf with all of the other gods and goddesses that they worship that the god of scripture the god of Abraham Moses I mean Abraham Isaac and Jacob is the one and only god it is an emphasis on his uh on his uniqueness uh, that he is the only god not an emphasis on solitary monotheism here, O Israel, begins the verse, and it means to listen. And the command to listen in Scripture is not just a command to stop, pay attention, let your auditory nerves be uh, stimulated. It is a command to do what you are being com- told to do. It's listen to instruction and then perform the instruction. It is the idea of, of uh, not just academically listening to something, but listening and responding and performing what is being taught. Listen, Israel, Yahweh our Elohim, Yahweh alone. And then we have the first command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now this is the preface to what comes afterwards. This is the foundation. The command is to love Yahweh, their God, and then it's modified by three phrases, all your heart, all your soul, and all your it's really something. The word there in the in the, in the Hebrew is a, an idiom, it's just with all your very. Very what? Very usually modifies something else but there's no something else there. It's usually translated with all your strength or something of that nature but literally it should be translated with all your very. It's as if you reach a point in your, uh, in your description of something and you no longer have the words to describe what you're trying to say. You're building to, to, to something huge, something enormous. You're, you know, there's this crescendo and yet when you get there, you're at a loss for words to describe what you're trying to say. And so what the writer is saying here, Uh, what God is saying is you love the Lord your God with all your mind, that is what you think, with all your soul, all the dimensions of your soul, see, it's moving out. And then with all your, your everything, everything that you've got, you're pouring into your love for God. Now, this kind of love, though, needs to be defined, and it's defined in the context of Deuteronomy in terms of obedience to what God has told Israel to do. They are to listen and learn all that God has told them. They are to let God's word richly and fully dwell in their lives, in other words. But how is it described here in terms of specifics? This is seen in the next three verses. These words I command you today shall be in your heart. Now that phrase, in your heart... Uh, the in there is not the Hebrew preposition buh, which would mean inside of or in in terms of something internal, but it is the preposition al, which means to be over, above, or uh, around almost. It is, it, it, it's a word that has over 40 different translations and it's a it's a preposition that that covers the the extent of it, so it's talking about the heart which in in the um, uh, hebrew understanding uh, an expression of the makeup of a human being is talking about the innermost part of the person it's it's your thinking it also includes your uh, your your volition in many cases but it is the totality of what makes you you in terms of the totality of your of your soul so he says these com- words i command you today and they should be upon your heart now when we talk about something being on our heart what are we talking about we're talking about something that we're constantly thinking about. When we, and even in English idiom, when we talk to somebody and we say, you know, you've been really been on my heart lately, what we're saying is I've been thinking about you a lot lately. You've been on my mind. And that's the idea here is that these words, that is the word of God should be on our thinking continuously. Now, how is that then developed? First of all, he says, you, assuming that you're a parent or a grandparent, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Now, when I was looking at this i um I thought, I wonder what that word for teach is it uh maybe it's, there, there's a number of different words that are used in Hebrew for teaching, and this is the word shannon s h a n a n shanan shenan, and it literally means to repeat to recount or to recite something. Now, some of you remember a time when this was the standard uh, modus operandi of education where you memorized things and you recited them back. And what happens when you're reciting things back is that you should be thinking about what it is that you are saying and this is how people learned things was by rehearsing reciting reviewing uh certain things so uh, parents were to recite or rehearse the commandments of god for their children this was supposed to be part of their ongoing conversation with their children you shall teach them or you shall recite them the word diligently is added in english just to try to intensify the idea of teaching in it but the hebrew concept is really to uh to recite this or to rehearse this and this is how the word of god would be passed on from one generation uh to another and this is further explained and uh in the next phrase, you shall talk of them. So the reciting has to do with, with teaching, talking, and reciting something. Now, when do you do this? You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. You shall talk of them when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. I don't think anything's left out. In, in throughout your life day in day out all day long as you are living your life you need to be relating that especially if you're a parent or grandparent you need to be relating it to the word of god not in a pedantic sort of way not ramming and cramming it down your kids throats but just because this is you, you live and walk and breathe your life in god's creation and so as you are relating to the creation of God around you, you make those observations in relation to your children. Then verse 8 talks about, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, in rabbinic Judaism, uh, later on, by even the first century, this was taken literally, and this refers to the phylacteries, the tephalim, that the uh, you'll often see uh, Orthodox Jews wear, they wrap uh, the leather straps around their arms and there's a pouch that goes on the back of their hand or on their forehead inside of which is a copy of this passage and so it is they take it literally and physically but the idea is that by as a sign on your hand is metaphorical by this is to impact the things that you do the things that you produce in life the things that you uh, "...work with your hands on the things that you are accomplishing in life, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes." This is the location of the brain. So it's talking about this is to control what goes on between your ears or in the Hebrew sense, behind your eyes. You're going to think about God's Word. And then verse 9 says, "...you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." Now, the word for doorposts in the Hebrew is mezuzah. Mezuzah refers now often to a uh, small uh, thing that you will see, ornament-looking lo- thing that you will see on the doorpost, usually the front door of a Jewish home. Often you will see these in, on every doorpost inside the home of an Orthodox Jew. And inside there's also a copy of this uh, scripture standing for the entirety of the Mosaic Law. It's taken literally. But the idea here is everything that goes on inside of our homes, inside of our houses, should be uh, organized and ordered around the Word of God as its ultimate priority so that the Word of God permeates everything that we do, uh, everything that we do in life. Now, another word that we find in scripture that talks about this is a word for meditation. Meditation also has this sense of reciting, reviewing something. So when you memorize scripture, which is something that, uh, that we should all be doing, when we memorize scripture, we rehearse it. I often, when I'm memorizing scripture, I say it out loud. I'll be walking, uh, for exercise and say verses out loud over and over again, and then I stop and I break them down phrase by phrase, clause by clause, and think about what they mean. That's the idea of meditation. It's reflecting upon uh, the Word of God. So we're to let the Word of God richly dwell within us. That's another word that indicates wealth. It indicates abundance. It's used in a number of passages to indicate the superabundance of God's mercy In our life, so how do we do this? How do we let the word of Christ richly dwell within us? Let me give you a couple of um, couple of suggestions. First of all, everyone here should make Bible reading part of their life. You should be reading your Bible just so you become knowledgeable about Scripture. This morning, in our first hymn, our opening hymn, we sang the second verse. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. I wonder how many people here, you don't need to give me a show of hands, how many people here know what that is a reference to? It's a reference to an event that occurs in 1 Samuel 3 and 4 related to uh, God's deliverance and victory for the Israelites in a battle where they set up a monument stone as a reminder of who God is. Eben Ezer, eben means stone, etzer means strength. Our, our aid assistant, like a woman, is the aider for a man. She's the helper for a man. So it is a rock of help as a reminder that God is the one who aids, helps, strengthens, strengthens Israel and gave Israel aid and victory in the battle. And so when this is used in a poetic manner, here I raise mine ebonatzer, it's a memorial stone of how God has been uh, the assistant, the helper, the one who strengthened the writer of the hymn. Now, if you don't read through your Bible and figure out these these names and references, then you sing a hymn, and it means nothing to you. And and you have no idea. Not why? Because you're basically you're biblically illiterate. Hymns are written in the assumption that you know something about who these people are, what the events are that are described and referred to, and it is assumed that the people of God, the Christians, are interested in learning what God has said, and they read the Bible. Anybody can read through the Bible in a year. Uh, Studies indicate that if you spend 20 minutes a day reading the Bible, you can read through the Bible easily in a year. You can get out on the internet and you can download a plethora Of Bible reading plans that will get you through the Bible in a year. Another thing you should do is you should take notes. Taking notes is a way of helping you concentrate on what is being taught on Sunday morning in Bible class so that later you can go back and review those notes and be reminded of what was said. So you should be taking notes. And you should be reviewing those notes so that uh, what you've learned gets uh, a little more emphasis in your thinking and you just don't go home and forget about it. Another area of challenge is that you should increase your attendance in Bible class. If you come on Sunday, you should think about coming Sunday and Tuesday, upping the challenge a little bit. If you come Sunday and Tuesday, maybe you should come Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Now I realize that there are folks who have various uh, work schedules and problems, and that's why we put things out on the Internet. We don't put things out on the Internet and live stream just so people who can get here can stay home and and just uh, be uh, a little lazy. Uh, It's helpful to have that, but the emphasis in Scripture is that we are to come together and assemble together to encourage one another. Just being in a room with other believers and seeing that there are others who are uh, with us in this task of pursuing spiritual maturity is a basis for encouragement. So you should decide, what's my level of Bible study right now? What's my level of learning the Word well, what's the next level? I need to push myself to the next level of Bible study. You should challenge yourself to memorize Scripture. We have a little booklet that we've recently had printed. There are some out in the foyer, out in the fellowship hall, on promises, claiming promises. And you should go through that and pick ten of your favorite promises and memorize them between, and make a goal that you're going to memorize those before the end of the year. You've got five months. That's two a month. You ought to be able to memorize two verses a week, but two a month will start off uh small, and you should be able to memorize ten promises by the end of the year. So challenge yourself to memorize scripture. That's just a starting point. And then um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do that, and a lot of different tools. There's a um, if you Google Bible, I think it's now scripture memory association. Uh, they have a lot of different tools. It's the old Bible Memory Association. Some of you, when you were kids, maybe went to Bible Memory Camp, memorized a lot of Scripture and uh, those things. But that's how we internalize it. Is, as David wrote in the psalm we read this morning, that I have, your word have I hid in my heart. That's memorization of Scripture. It's internalization of Scripture. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That's not just memorizing doctrine or learning doctrine or being uh, cognizant of doctrine. That is knowing the word of God and having that in your thinking so that you can recall those promises. What would happen if somehow in the next five years there were to be some sort of uh, uh, just uh, government collapse and all of a sudden you were to find yourselves living in a nation that began to uh, oppress Christians, and to destroy Bibles. Now, that may sound far-fetched, that it would not be the first time in history that something like that has happened. It happened in Russia back in 1917 with the Bolshevik Revolution, and then once the Soviets were in charge, once the communists were in charge, they made a conscientious effort of destroying and removing from the uh, language all words that were theologically significant for Christianity. They expunged them from all dictionaries, burned all the old dictionaries, reprinted all the new dictionaries, but they took all these words out. They tried to take these words out of all Russian literature so that you could never discover what those words were. If you read your Bible, you would read words like righteousness or justice Uh, uh, words related to the omniscience, the sovereignty of God, things like that. You couldn't even look those words up in a dictionary to find out what they were. You were lost. And so it was an overt attack on Scripture, but what enabled uh, believers to survive was what they had memorized and what was in their soul. That's what counts. And so I challenge you. This is just the beginning point of letting the Word of Christ richly become a part of our life, inhabit our life, take up residence in and become uh, just a just part of the family. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to reflect upon your word today and the, the significance of it and the priority it should be in our lives, that you have revealed in the Scripture uh, yourself, uh, your commandments for us, so that we might not be uh, left in the dark. This is our only source of enlightenment and the only source of truth. Father, we pray that we might not be complacent about what we have in the Scriptures. We live in a time when more teaching, more instruction, more Scripture is available to us than in any other time in history. And yet, as a whole, uh, believers are more complacent about your Word than ever before. Father, we pray that you would challenge us individually, personally, with the need to step up our commitment to making your word a vital, integral part of our thinking and our life. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that you might have eternal life simply by believing in him trusting in him so all that you have to do right now right where you sit is simply trust in him believe that jesus died on the cross for your sins and at that instant god imputes to you perfect righteousness of christ and you are declared just and you are born again and you have eternal life that can never be taken from you father we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study today in christ's name amen